Hello and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host of this podcast, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Have we been on somewhat of a hiatus? I spent 10 days in India on a mission trip going into some remote villages, uh, doing discipleship with pastors and village evangelism and church strengthening with a group of seven from our church. And so it was a wonderful time of ministry. And so I'm back and I've decided to re-engage the podcast and and just address an issue that's kind of been mulling in my head really for about a year now in my um, interactions with traditionalist Southern Baptists who are non-Calvinists. Now, I'm not going to mention names. Those of you that have been listening to the podcast or the debates uh, know who the cast of characters are, and we're friends, and we um, have done debates together. But there's this, this one statement that still just doesn't resonate with me, and, I, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And it goes something like this. You will hear the argument that They'll say things like this, you Calvinists believe in a mystical work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, and we don't see that taught in the Bible. We believe, as the non-traditionalist Southern Baptist would say, is that the scripture alone is sufficient. God has worked through the prophets. God has worked through the writing of Scripture. And the Bible in the presentation of the gospel in and of itself is sufficient to bring about or enable a response for a person to believe the gospel. In other words, what they're denying is effectual calling. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit must effectually or internally call a sinner to repentance and faith and overcome their deadness and inability and so regenerate them through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, in and of it's in a nutshell, the argument that they have. And some of the terminology I find troubling and actually logically inconsistent. They will use terms like the scripture or the gospel presentation is enough to enable a response. And that's the wording they'll use. It's enough to enable a response. Now, when you use the term enable, what does that imply? What does that assume? If you need to be enabled to respond, that assumes that you are not able to respond. It assumes inability. It assumes that there must be something preventing you from responding because the gospel must enable a response. That's what the the definition of the word enable means, to give or grant the ability, which is very interesting because traditionalists, non-Calvinist Southern Baptists deny total inability. They will believe in total depravity, but they will deny total inability. So when I hear terms like the gospel and the presentation of the scripture is enough to enable a response, I have to ask the question, if it's enough to enable a response, then do you believe that we are unable without the aid of the scriptures? number one. And number two, if the scripture and the presentation of the gospel is enough to enable a response, then why does not everyone respond when so enabled? In other words, if the scripture in and of itself and the presentation of the gospel enables a response, 
then should not everyone be enabled or given the ability to respond? And should they not all respond? That's some questions that I think need to be answered. Now, the Calvinist and the Arminian both have an answer to this. What's, what I find interesting is that the traditional Southern Baptist has, it doesn't have an answer for this, but biblically, Arminians and Calvinists have an answer. They're different answers, but they start at the same starting point. Both classical Arminians and historic Calvinists believe in the doctrine of total inability. We both believe in spiritual deadness. We both believe that the Bible teaches we're dead in our sins. We are enslaved to sin. We are unable to come to Christ on our own. We are spiritually depraved and spiritually unable to come to Christ. And so the problem lies in the fact that we are unable. We are dead. And so something has to happen to overcome what the Bible teaches in this inability. And so the Arminian, the classical Arminian answer to spiritual deadness, spiritual inability, is prevenient grace. And prevenient just means prior, or grace that must come before. So they understand that man in and of himself lacks the capacity, the ability to come to faith. So something has to come prior to a response to overcome inability. That prior grace or that prevenient grace is what the Arminians will argue needs to happen. And so prevenient grace basically overcomes spiritual deadness. It puts a sinner, if you will, back in a position like Adam was pre-fall, given the ability to choose between two options. And so prevenient grace is given to all people, not just to the elect, but to all people. And it's an enabling grace. It enables a response, but you can choose to reject that grace or you can choose to cooperate with that grace. But that grace must come before. And so prevenient grace in the Arminian system is a Holy Spirit-endued type of grace that works internally on people through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just the scripture alone or the testimony of the gospel. There is a secondary or an extra working of grace that has to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. So classical Arminians believe that. We as Calvinists would say that, yes, there must be some type of prevenient grace, but our definition of prevenient grace is different. We believe that God grants grace only to the elect. Those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world by God's sovereignty, they and only they will receive this grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the effectual call that actually doesn't just enable a response, but actually overcomes deadness and ensures infallibly a response. In other words, it cannot be resisted. It's not something you cooperate with. It's an overcoming grace that actually grants saving faith through the effectual call. And so both classical Arminians and traditional historic Calvinists believe that there has to be the working of the Holy Spirit prior to a response of faith to grant a person ability. The traditionalist, non-Calvinist Southern Baptist 
I've been hearing are denying this special work of the Holy Spirit. They will use terms like, you guys believe in this mystical, internal working of the Holy Spirit, this sovereign regeneration, this effectual call that we don't see anywhere taught in the Bible, that the gospel alone is the power of salvation, and that the presentation of the scripture is enough to enable a response. And again, I ask the question, if it's enough to enable a response, then you are assuming inability in your language by using the word enable, and number two, if it's enough to enable a response, then why doesn't everybody respond? There must be something lacking in the revelation of God. And so your counter argument might be, well, what's lacking is not in the revelation of God. What's lacking is you're using your free will to reject that revelation. But if it enables a response, then it should enable a response. What does it mean? Define the term. What does it mean to enable a response? If it's something's going to enable a response, that means it gives the ability for a person to respond. And given that ability, I guess, what they were saying is you can choose to cooperate or not cooperate with that ability. So what I want to do is I want to look at effectual calling in the scriptures. What is effectual calling? I believe the Bible teaches two types of call. The word calling is all throughout the Bible. Those who've been called, the the called ones, make your calling and election sure. Uh, There's an outward call of the gospel that goes out in the preaching of the word. This is what we would say that the traditional Southern Baptists agree with, the external call of the gospel. But we take it a step further and believe that there's actually an inward or an effective call. So, for example, in Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the outward call of Jesus. Come to me all. It's an invitation. It's extended to all people to come to him, to believe in him. It's the external call. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, Jesus will give you rest. Come to him. That's the external call. But it's interesting in that same passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 11, just a few verses before that, It says in verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed down to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Now, that's an interesting terminology. The Son, Jesus, makes a choice in whom the revelation of God is going to come. Is that everybody? Does the Holy Spirit choose to effectually call or reveal Christ or reveal the Father to everyone, or is it a special inward call of the gospel? Well, where we need to go is Romans 8, 28 through 30. It all comes back to the golden chain of redemption, because this teaches the link between election and calling and justification and glorification and how all these aspects of salvation work together. Romans 8, 28 through 30. 
we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now let's just look at this passage of Scripture in great detail. Romans eight twenty-eight. It's a very popular passage of scripture. We go to this when we need to understand that God works all things for our good. We think about how God is sovereign over our circumstances. But I want you to notice how Paul qualifies the working of God. He gives two qualifiers for how this operates. God does not work out all things for good for everybody universally. There's a qualification. There's a definition. And so Paul will define for us who God works out all things for good. And the bottom line answer is believers. But how does he define believers in this passage of Scripture? Two descriptions. Number one, we are defined as those who love God. For those who love God. Now, can this be said of every single person on planet Earth? Does every single person love God? No, only believers love God. And he also says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is everybody called according to his purpose? No, only those who have been effectually called. Now, let's look at the relationship in this. How does this all work? Well, it's a golden chain of redemption. There is God's foreknowing of a people in eternity past. He set his electing love upon his people. Then he predestined those people. And then he called those people, and then he justified those people, and then he will glorify those people. And those people are all the same people. There's no slippage in the golden chain of redemption. So think of it this way. If there is someone who is called of God, that same person will also be justified by God. Now, can it be said that everybody is justified. In other words, you can say there's an outward call of the gospel that goes out, but not everybody is inwardly called and not everybody is justified by faith alone. Only God grants that to those who have been predestined before the foundation of the world. And so when you think about the effectual calling, it's this inward work of the Holy Spirit whereby He grants repentance and faith to God's elect and overcomes their spiritual deadness and inability and sovereignly regenerates them and brings them all the way to faith. It cannot be resisted. It cannot be overpowered. God sovereignly ensures the regeneration, and the response of his elect. 
through the internal effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it called effectual calling? Because it affects something. It actually brings about the response. That's why we use the word effectual calling. Whereas the traditional non-Southern, non-Calvinist Southern Baptist can't use that. They would say it enables a response. And again, I don't know what that means. If, so, if you're enabling a response that assumes that there's inability, which they deny, and it seems to me that if it enables a response, then now you have the ability to respond, and thus you should respond. And so I need them to unpack that in more detail. Because without the internal effectual call, nobody would come to faith in Christ. Think about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. God has caused us to be born again through the living hope in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. God has caused this to happen. John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. Now, one of the examples is Acts 16.14 of Lydia. And I want to look at the example of Lydia because I've heard some interesting interpretations of this by some traditional non Calvinistic Southern Baptist. Acts 16.14. Paul, let, let me just give you the context. This is Philippi. Paul goes down to the river. And let me just um, give you some background about Philippi. Um, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia, in Greece. And normally in a city, there had to be probably about 12 adult male Jewish men in order for there to be a synagogue in the city, a, a Jewish church. And oftentimes Paul would go first to the synagogue if there was a synagogue in that city. In Philippi, there's no synagogue, so there's probably not enough Jewish males or, or for whatever reason, there's no established synagogue. But there is a handful of Jewish proselytes, those that are holding to Judaism, that aren't worshiping in a temple, but are having to find a place to worship down by a river. And Paul finds out about this group of Jewish people. And, and, and by the way, this was, this was Paul's modus operandi. Paul would first go to the Jews in any city he would go to. If you read the book of Acts, he goes to the Jews first. Why does he go to the Jews? Well, he believed that the gospel was first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. And, and so when he would go to the Jews, he would actually be able to have a starting point. He could reason from the scriptures. He could prove from the scriptures. Um, as he goes to Thessalonica, the next town after Philippi, he does that. For three Sabbath days, he reasons from the scriptures. So when you look at Luke tw- chapter 24, when Jesus does this um, exegetical um, exposition through the entire scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and takes his disciples through that journey and says everything points to Christ, I think Jesus taught his disciples to use that hermeneutic. If you look in the book of Acts, they actually use that hermeneutic. Peter, at his sermon in Pentecost, preaches um, expositionally from the Old Testament, proving that Christ is the Messiah. You look at 
Stephen before the Sanhedrin, he does the same thing. He goes through the Old Testament, shows how it points to Christ. You look at Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, the book of Isaiah, he explains to him how that points to Christ. Even Paul in Acts chapter 13, he goes to the synagogue and preaches an expositional sermon from the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And so among the Jewish people, they could appeal to the scriptures because they believe the scriptures, all that Paul would do was then to prove, to um, encourage, to show, to point to them how all of these Old Testament scriptures point to Christ as the Messiah. And so that was his his, his modus operandi. He'd go to a town, he'd find the, the synagogue, he'd find the Jewish people, and he would start there. If there was um, a reaction If there was a riot, sometimes there would be a riot. If there's hostility, if there's persecution, then Paul would then go to the Gentiles. Okay, so Philippi is a Gentile area. And it is a place where there is not a heavily Jewish population. But there are some, what they call, God-fearing Jewish proselytes. This does not mean that they are Christians. This does not mean that they've embraced Christ as Messiah. This means that they are open to the Old Testament scriptures. They are open to the Jewish customs. They are open to Jewish dietary laws. They have somehow been influenced by Judaism, and they're interested in that, and they're, they're worshiping the God of the Old Testament per se, but they have not been exposed to Christ as Messiah. So when it talks about a God-fearer in the book of Acts, or it talks about a worshiper of God, this does not mean that they are saved. This does not mean that they are regenerate. This does not mean that they believe in Christ. This just simply means that they are exposed to Judaism. And so as Paul's missionary method was, is to go to these people first, because at least they could have an appreciation for the Old Testament scriptures, and he could start there. Now, there's other places where Paul would go where they're pagans. They're they're Gentile pagans, and he doesn't appeal to the scriptures because they don't hold to the scriptures. They're not Jewish uh, proselytes. They don't understand the Old Testament scriptures, so Paul has to usually start with creation. Uh, You see this when he goes to um, Athens, And so there's different ways that Paul does evangelism and church planning depending on his audience. And so Philippi has a small group of God-fearing Jewish proselytes, non-saved, non-believers. They're open to the Old Testament scriptures. They are having a worship service or some type of teaching down by the river, but they're not saved. So that's the context. I know that's a lot to bring us to Acts 16.14. Here we go. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, Lydia is mentioned by name. She was probably a wealthy woman. She was a dealer in purple cloth, which meant that she was probably in the fashion business. Purple was um, the... The, um, the clothing of fashion. She's probably wealthy. She's well-to-do. It says she was a worshiper of God. Now, at first glance, if you don't know the context and you don't know the background and you don't understand um, what's going on in the book of Acts at this time, you may just assume by that terminology that she was a believer because it says she was worshiping God. How can a non-believer worship God? 
when, when, when Luke uses that terminology, a worshiper of God in the context of Acts, it does not mean that they're a Christian. It's code word for a Jewish proselyte, someone who's open to Judaism, but has not yet been converted. And how do we know that? Because it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now we have to look at this very carefully. Paul is preaching. We don't have the context of Paul's message. Luke does not record for us every single sermon in the book of Acts. Sometimes there's snapshots. Sometimes there's, there's a fuller treatment. Here we just have a summary statement. But we can assume by the rest of Paul's writings and Paul's other sermons in the book of Acts that he is probably doing an exposition of Old Testament scriptures showing how that points to Jesus as the Messiah, Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And so as Paul is preaching a message, that's the outward call. He's going through the scriptures He's exposing the scriptures. And if you look at what happens, if you take the traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist viewpoint, then Paul's message in and of itself should be enough. That message that Paul preached should be enough to enable a response in Lydia. And so we could just play around with the scriptures and say that um, Paul's message in and of itself enabled her to respond to his message. But that's not what the text says. Notice what the text says. The scripture, the Lord opened her heart. That's just another way to describe effectual calling or sovereign regeneration. And who is the one doing the work? This is a monergistic work of God's grace. It does not say... Lydia opened her heart. Lydia had a proclivity to believe. Lydia was enabled to have a response. No, the scripture says the Lord opened her heart. God in his sovereignty is the first mover. God takes the initiative. And why does God have to open her heart? What's wrong with Lydia's heart that needs to be opened? Why can't she open her own heart? Well, the rest of the scripture teaches she can't open her own heart because her heart's deceitful. Her heart is desperately wicked. She is spiritually incapable of responding to Paul's message unless the Lord does this work. And notice how Luke does not record how the Lord opened anybody else's heart. So there may have been people down there at the river listening to Paul's message who didn't respond. Now, if you take the traditionalist, non-Calvinist, Southern Baptist viewpoint, you would then have to say, okay, if Paul's message in and of itself was enough to enable a response, why didn't everybody respond? Well, their answer would be, well, the reason they didn't respond is because they were enabled to respond, but they chose not to by using their free will. And again, I go back to, well, if they're enabled to respond, then you're assuming they're unable before. And Luke addresses this right here. He says that, She had to have her heart opened. That's the internal call of the gospel. Paul's message goes out. That's the external call. Paul's message goes out. That is the invitation to respond. Everybody down there at the river heard Paul's message. It was the scripture. It was the gospel. But there had to be an internal working of God's grace in a particular woman, Lydia, to open her heart heart. And so when the Lord 
opened Lydia's heart to respond, how did she respond? Well, we find out later on she's baptized and that the church is planted in her home. So Luke doesn't give us the whole explanation, but we'd have to assume that she responded with repentance and faith, which then shows that repentance and faith are gifts that God grants in opening a heart, in the effectual call. That's why it's called effectual calling. It affects a response. It doesn't just enable a response whether you can accept or reject it. It actually affects repentance and faith. Now, let me just look at some other passages of Scripture that teach that the Spirit or the, or the Lord does, in fact, through the effectual calling, through the inward call, through sovereign regeneration, grant repentance and faith. Acts 5.31, God exalted him in his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to give, to grant. That means to give repentance and faith as a gift. And I still don't understand the interpretation that these traditionalist non-Southern Baptists use, that I've heard them take these verses and say, yeah, God grants them. It just means that God enabled the response. Well, that's not what the text says. The text does not say God enabled a response. It says God granted. If God grants something, if God gives something, that's a gift of grace that God actually gives. It affects something. It's not just given and it's out there and then you can choose to accept it or not accept it. When the Bible talks about God granting things and God giving things, it's not that God grants the ability or that God just kind of holds it out there and says, okay, you can choose. It's where God actually effectually gifts or grants or graces or effectuates or actuates the response. In other words, the faith that is required to come to to, to faith in Christ is granted. The, the power of the call creates the faith in a person's heart. So when God grants repentance, that means that Israel could not repent unless God had granted that to them. When God grants repentance that leads to life, that means that you could not repent unto life without God granting that to you. You could not believe unless God granted that. And again, the terminology. If the gospel or the scriptures or the presentation or the message in and of itself is enough to enable a response, then you're assuming that you're unable before. And if you're unable before, why are you unable? You've got to answer that, traditionalists. If you deny total inability, which you do, but then you say the gospel message is enough to enable a response, then either you need to change the word enable or you need to define your terms more clearly or, or you need to clarify what you mean by that. Because when you use the term enable a response, to me, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you guys, to me it means that there was not the ability there before. 
And if God enables a response, it would seem that the scripture should be powerful enough and God should be power enough that when he enables something, when he grants something, when he enables that, it's going to happen. That's what we as Calvinists believe. It's effectual. When God grants repentance, when God grants faith, it's going to happen. You're going to repent. You're going to believe. He's going to overcome that depravity. It's not going to be resisted. You think about 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy about how the Lord's servant, the the pastor, needs to to lead out in his church. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice the, the, the potential terminology that Paul says there. God may perhaps grant them repentance. And they may escape. Now, Does that sound like it's a done deal? When you externally call people to repentance and faith, what does Paul say there? You're not quarrelsome. You need to teach. You need to correct your opponents. That's the external call. Okay. When you're preaching, when you're counseling, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're going through the scriptures, when you're doing all those things, that's the external call. But then Paul says God may perhaps grant repentance, or he may not. You don't know. It's up to God's sovereignty whether he's going to grant repentance. You don't know because you don't know if that person you're talking to is among the elect. Your job is to give the external call. Your job, Timothy, in the context here, is to not quarrel, to be kind, to teach, to endure evil, to correct your opponents, to do all the things that God has called you as a pastor, to preach, to teach, to lead. And by extension, when you think about you personally, you're not Timothy and you may not be a pastor, but when you share the gospel, when you maybe teach a Sunday school class, or whenever you're ministering the word of God, that's the external call that goes out to people that are, law, that are non-believers. And God may or may not grant repentance. It's up to him whether he does that. And so the only uh, the thing we have to understand is that when God does grant repentance... It's his sovereign prerogative to do so in the effectual call. And when he grants that, it's going to happen. They're going to repent and believe. It's not just enabling a response. It's actually granting the actual um, repentance of faith that's that's required in salvation. And God's going to ensure infallibly that it happens. James 1.18, of his own will, he, this is God, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth. And so, when we look at the consistency of Scripture, we have to say there is an external call and there's an internal call. You can see it in the Timothy passage. You can see it in Lydia. You can see it in Jesus. Just a few examples that I've given in this podcast that there is an external call of the gospel that goes out. And when that external call of the gospel goes out, people are accountable. They hear the truth. They may understand the truth, but they are spiritually dead. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to them. They're not spiritually discerned. They don't have the ability to do that. God must overcome that inability through the effectual or internal call whereby He actually opens a person's heart. He grants repentance and faith. He sovereignly regenerates. And God only does that to the elect, and they and only they will infallibly come to faith in Christ. The other view you have is, the traditionalist, non-Calvinist, Southern Baptist view is that there is an external call that goes out. 
And that external call is powerful enough to enable a response. There's no internal call. There's no effectual call. There's just the external call. And when the external call goes out, it is powerful to enable a response. And again, I ask the question, if it enables a response, then why is there inability before? Why were they not able to respond? If the gospel message, if the external call enables a response, then by that word enable, you're assuming total inability. You're assuming there's a barrier. You're assuming they're unable to respond before they receive that message. And once that message has come, then it enables a response. And once the response is enabled, you can either agree with that, faith, or you can reject that. It's totally up to you in your free will. There's no internal calling. And so I would have to say that the consistent testimony of Scripture teaches both the external call, which is important, and the internal call, which actually affects repentance and faith in the heart of the elect. And so you be the judge as you listen to this podcast. You've got the three different views. You've got Arminianism that says, yes, we're totally unable. Yes, we're totally depraved. Yes, we are spiritually dead. There needs to be something, some type of internal working of God's grace to overcome that. Their answer is prevenient grace given to everyone. You can cooperate with that grace. But at least they understand and they admit to and they, they hold to total inability. You've got the Calvinistic view that says, yes, we are totally disabled. Yes, we are we are." Um, depraved. We're dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. We cannot, uh, we, don't, we lack the ability to come to faith. And so God must effectually call and sovereignly regenerate us. And so both the Arminians and the Calvinists believe in the external call and somewhat of the internal call. They, they define the internal call differently, but they, they recognize that God has to internally do a work through this Holy Spirit in addition to just the outward call um, of, of the gospel. But you have the traditionalist Southern Baptists, non-Calvinists that reject Number one, total inability, they reject an internal call. But yet, by their nomenclature, by their definitions, by their wording, they seem to contradict themselves by saying that the external call enables a response. And again, I will say it, if you use the word enable, you are assuming inability, because what does the word enable mean? To give the ability. And if the Word gives the ability that assumes that there was an inability before. And so you have to ask the question, what are you unable to do? What in the non-traditionalist, non-Calvinist Southern Baptist viewpoint, if the, if the word, the external call, grants the ability or enables a response, then why were they not able to respond beforehand? You've got to answer that. And your answer may be that they're totally depraved, but not totally disabled, but then you need to change your terminology. And so maybe it's just a terminology, maybe it's a semantics, but hopefully in this podcast you've seen the difference between um, these views and um, you be the judge and jury, go study the scriptures, be a Berean, um, come to these conclusions on your own. Again, these are secondary issues. These aren't something that we need to fight over. Um, we can get along together as far as how we do evangelism, as long as, as long as we both agree that the external call must go out. I mean, nobody believes in not giving the external call. Uh, that's hyper-Calvinism, where you don't go share the gospel, you don't pray for lost people. Um, you know, I was just in India uh, last week and went into a village, and I got to share with a young man. He was 22 years old, and he had um, uh, 
His father died at a young age. His mother left him, and so he's living with his sister and her family. He's kind of a bitter young man. He's 22. He's a, he's a university student. He's searching. I asked him why um, he believes Hinduism is true, and he says, I don't really know. It's just something I've grown up with. And I said, can I tell you the story of Jesus? And so for about 45 minutes on um, this, this porch in this village, I was able to verbally share the gospel. And he was somewhat open. He understood. He had not heard a full gospel presentation before. I was able to answer some of his objections, answer his questions. And so um, I was faithful in giving the external call. I shared verbally the gospel. And in my theology, at this point, I can't force a response. God may or may not grant him repentance. And hopefully God does. But all of us agree that we need to give the external call. We need to present the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless somebody preaches? So obviously we need to preach, we need to teach, we need to share, we need to evangelize. That's what we can agree upon. We can go hand in hand as Calvinists and Arminians and traditional uh, non-Calvinist Southern Baptists and, and share the gospel. It's just how people come to faith and why people come to faith is where we disagree. And if we could just hold our hats and, and, and say strong on the need to share the full gospel and call people to repentance and faith, those secondary issues, I think, in, may not be that much of a big a deal, especially as the culture becomes more hostile. Some of these internal arguments about effectual calling and prevenient grace and sovereign regeneration, while important, while fundamental, they may become more and more secondary to just the proclamation of the gospel when a hostile culture comes at us. We won't be so much debating among ourselves as far as these internal issues when we've got bigger fish to fry with the culture bringing persecution, bringing opposition. We need to stand strong together as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of denominational stripe, as long as we hold to the, the fundamentals of the faith and, and be, be solid in presenting the outward call of the gospel. Well, it's good to be back on this podcast. Um, thank you for listening. Again, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please email me. You can go to seancole.net. You can find my contact information. You can find my Facebook link, my Twitter. Um, you can go to iTunes, give us a review and rating. That would be very helpful. Um, I love to get emails and, and correspond. And so thank you for being a faithful listener. Um, and so hopefully as the summer winds down, you're, you've had a good summer and you're gearing up for the fall. And so um, God bless you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.